morning everyone, it's good to see you all here on this Sunday morning. Let me begin uh, with a quiz question. Keep you, you've already done some saw drill, uh, which I remember doing when I was in Sunday school. Um, we always used to say to some, we, our favourite was to call out the book of Hezekiah and see how long it took before people realised there wasn't one. But, uh, so this is an easier question, alright? Uh, which of these Christians is the odd one out? John Bunyan, the 17th century author of Pilgrim's Progress. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and theologian who lived in the early part of the 20th century and during the Second World War. Billy Graham, 20th century American evangelist. And Richard Vermbrandt, Romanian pastor during the communist era? Well, the answer isn't difficult, at least the one I'm looking for. Bunyan, Bonhoeffer and Vermbrand were all arrested and imprisoned for their faith for speaking out in the name of Jesus. So the odd one out is Billy Graham. Now, that's of course not a criticism of one of the great evangelists of modern times. Just an observation. No Christian volunteers for imprisonment. But the history of the Church of Jesus Christ shows that many followers of Jesus were imprisoned for their faith. And this continues to the present day. A couple of weeks ago, I received an email newsletter from someone I used to work with when I was a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, she reported in this letter on a conference she attended in Thailand for the World Evangelical Alliance Mission Commission. Uh, let me quote what she wrote because it came home to me with some force. She said, I was on a panel one evening when the theme of the day was the suffering and persecuted church. I was the only member of the panel who had not been persecuted for my faith. It is quite amazing and humbling to meet some Christians who have been in and out of prison for many years. Now, what is true today has often been true in the past. Right back to the beginnings of the Christian church as recorded in the book of Acts, which we've been studying together over this year under the title, The Spreading Flame. Indeed, as we come to the last quarter of Acts, which has 28 chapters, the last quarter, the last seven chapters, features the Apostle Paul in prison for that whole period of around four years. He's taken the Gospel to many parts of the Roman Empire. Now he's stuck, as it were, humanly speaking, he is stuck in prison. Is the spreading flame about to be arrested? Not at all. As Paul writes himself in his last letter, again in prison, awaiting execution, many years later he says, the word of God is not chained. Whenever and wherever Paul is, he uses the opportunity to speak out in the name of Christ. And so I want to look again, and we're going to be looking at this over the next two or three weeks, let's look at how Paul responds to the situation he finds himself in. Uh, we're going to look at it under the title, Faith on Trial. And again, you need to 
put your Bibles in the air and then look down and find Acts. And just to help you, of course, we now give you the page numbers. In the Church Pew Bibles, it's page 1121. So if you haven't got a Bible, just find one and uh, we'll turn together to Acts chapter 24. If you've been following our series, and you can follow it on the internet as well, and uh, by tape, it's just quite amazing. I got an email this week from some Anglican minister in Western Australia, who's been following the sermons, and says finding them very helpful. So that's great, wonderful. Uh, So, uh, if you've been with us in the series, the Apostle Paul has been taken out of Jerusalem under cover of darkness, escorted by hundreds of Roman soldiers, because there's been a threat on his life from over 40 Jewish zealots who've decided to fast until they kill him. So here he is in Caesarea, awaiting the arrival of his accusers. Chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, after his arrival there, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea from Jerusalem. You always go down from Jerusalem, because it's high up, with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Felix was the Roman governor. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him by examining him yourself you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone, at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted out as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, 
adjourned adjourn the proceedings. With Lysias, the, when Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul and the guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. This is God's word that we're focusing on today. Uh, very simply, let me just explain where we're going before we get there, God willing. Uh, first of all, in this chapter we see Paul doing two things. First of all, you see in verses 1 to 23, Paul defending the faith in public before this lawyer, Tertullus, and the rest of his accusers. Secondly, we also see Paul proclaiming the faith in private before Felix, a Roman governor, and his wife, Drusilla, verses 24 to 27. So, just follow with me as we look at these two themes. First of all, then, uh, defending the faith in public, verses 1 to 23. Five days after his arrival in Caesarea, Paul's accusers turn up to present their case against him before the Roman governor, Antonius Felix. They regard the threat so seriously that the high priest Ananias himself makes the 60-mile journey to be present at the trial. But they don't travel alone. They have with them a lawyer they have hired for the occasion. The trial is going to be under Roman law. And so they hire this lawyer called Tertullus, who's an expert in Roman law. Now, I don't want to say anything disparaging about lawyers because there are quite a few in this church. Uh, but this is a hired man. He knows the system. And he is specially skilled in oratory. The word translated for lawyer here is a rhetorician, someone who's good at rhetoric and flowery languages. And he opens for the prosecution. And I want you to kind of imagine you're there in court. In fact, these occasions were public occasions, so anyone could turn up and listen. Like they do in many of our courts, you know, in the public gallery. And as you see the opening part of the speech, uh, William Barclay, the old commentator, describes the opening words as almost nauseating flattery. Here he stands up and he begins to describe the wonderful reforms that Governor Felix has brought to Judea. I, I would imagine if you're one of those Jewish religious leaders who's hired him, you would have a job not to put your head down or for your face to get a bit flushed as he begins to talk about this. Uh, the governor Felix was a tyrant. He had ruthlessly stamped out any dissent among the Jewish population. He had crucified numerous, numerous people at a whim. And yet this man stands up and says, Most excellent Felix, we're so profoundly grateful for the wonderful reforms you've brought to our nation. 
Maybe, though, he's suggesting to Felix that maybe he ought to crucify one more, namely the prisoner standing before them. And when he addresses Felix as most excellent Felix, even though it was a term of courtesy, many in the court might have rolled their eyes, for Felix was universally despised by everyone. Uh, The Roman historian Tacitus describes him as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. That's what everybody thought about this man, Felix. But to tell us, uh, like many before him and since, including preachers, promises to be brief. Uh, And although what he says here is a summary of his speech, unless he only spoke for 60 seconds, (coughs) you can read it that quickly in whatever language, he infers in his opening words, the case against this man, Paul, is so compelling that all he needs to do is briefly state the facts before the governor, and it's, it's obvious that he's guilty. And so, preliminaries over, he turns to the accusations made against Paul. Just notice, there are three accusations he makes against Paul. First of all, he says, this man, Paul, is a dangerous troublemaker. The word translated troublemaker is literally pest. Not in the modern sense of a pest that's something irritating, but in the old sense of a plague, like like the Black Death, which infects everyone who comes into contact with it. And Tertullus says, this man Paul is like that. Everywhere he goes, he infects people with his terribly dangerous message. He's what we call a rabble-rouser. He stirs up trouble in the Jewish communities wherever he goes. And that is not all. He then says he's a sectarian ringleader. He says he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. This is the only reference in the Bible to this disparaging term to describe the followers of Jesus whom it was believed came from Nazareth. And so they said he was from the Nazarene sect, believing that Jesus was born there, though in fact, of course, he was born in Bethlehem. Whatever the name, the charge that Paul was the ringleader of a sect would have aroused alarm bells in the mind of the governor. The Romans were very careful about this kind of thing. And especially in Judea. There had been numerous riots and problems in history in the past. When you came to Judea, if you were a governor, the first brief you would probably receive is, watch out for sex. Watch out for religious ferment and, dis- and dissent. And then to tell us finishes with a third accusation of a more specific nature about Paul. He says he's a temple desecrator. Now, if you've been with us in the series, you'll know that this is the incident that sparked off all the problems when Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner court of the temple reserved for Jews only. Acts 21, verse 28. Now, of course, this was a religious matter, not a civil matter. Nonetheless, the Romans respected Jewish sensitivities and there was a tacit agreement with them that should any Gentile enter the inner court, the Romans would not intervene to stop him being torn to pieces. And so, presentation finished, you can imagine Tertullus with his great rhetorical flourish, sits down and all the Jewish supporters with him go, here, here, yes, yes, off with his head, or whatever they said in those days. And uh, no doubt, if you'd been a supporter of Paul, you would no doubt have been rather worried about his future. It's not hard to imagine, is it not? Even in our own democracy these days, that allegations of being ringleaders of sex stirring up community dissent, sets off alarm bells. There was a case only in June in England recently of two Christians who were distributing tracts in a Muslim part of one of our cities who were stopped by the police and the words given to them were, you have been warned, if you come back here and get beat up, well, you've been warned. 
that kind of thing stirs up dissent. So, how will Paul respond to these accusations? Will he respond at all? Will he say to himself, well, this guy Felix is just a tyrant and it's a no-win situation, I may as well just forget it. No, he knows as a Roman citizen he has the right to reply. And Felix knows that too. And so he turns to Paul. Now, notice the answer that Paul gives to the accusations, which he addresses specifically. The answer is given by Paul in verses 10 to 21. And notice that Paul does not resort to great flourishes of flattery. He says to Felix, I'm glad you're uh, here in court because you know our system well. You've had experience of being a judge, which you had then for quite a few years now. And he says, I'm glad to present my case before you to make my defense. The word translated defense here is a legal word, the one from which we get the word apologetics. Not to apologize, but to give a reasoned defense for your beliefs and behavior. And he responds very specifically to each of the accusations made against him. First of all, he says, I'm not a troublemaker. He says, look, all you need to do is check out the facts. I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. I've not been engaged in any public discourse. I've not preached any sermons. I've not debated with anyone. I was in the temple alone in private worship when the trouble started. He then turns to the second accusation with an admission but also a qualification. He doesn't say, I'm a member of the Nazarene sect. He says, I am a follower of the way. He says, I don't belong to some unorthodox sect, a splinter group from the true Jewish faith. He says, I'm a fully orthodox Jew who follows the one who is the way. Jesus. Which he claimed for himself, the way, the truth, and the life. And it seems that Christians use this title to describe themselves. They were followers of the way. The one who is the way. So he says, I believe in everything my Jewish accusers believe. Especially, and here he puts in a dig, especially the final hope of the resurrection from the dead. Because he knows that Ananias and his fellow Sadducees don't believe in such a thing. And with that in mind, he says, I always try to keep a clear conscience before God and my fellow men. In the Bible Speaks Today, commentary on Acts, John Stock comments, of Paul, he was not an innovator therefore, but loyal to the ancestral faith, nor was he a sectarian or heretical deviant, for he stood squarely in mainstream Judaism. His worship, faith, hope and goal were no different from theirs. And he concludes, the way enjoyed a direct continuity with the Old Testament, for the scriptures bore witness to Jesus Christ as the one in whom God's promises had been fulfilled. And so, putting those two things out of the way, he now turns to the specific accusation and says, I didn't desecrate the temple. He explains that he came to Jerusalem after a long break. His reason for coming was to bring gifts to the poor and to present offerings in the temple. He said, when I went in the temple, I was ceremonially clean. That's why the priests let me in. They wouldn't have done otherwise. And he was there alone that his accusers found him. And then he looks around the court and he says, in fact, where are those accusers? They were some Jews from the province of Asia. And he looks around the court, they're not there, presumably because they could easily be discredited and the, the evidence for the prosecution had decided not to bring them to court. Now, this was a very serious issue in Roman law. If you accuse someone of something, you were supposed to be in court to make the charges. And so Paul turns to his accuser and says, what crime have I committed? The only thing I spoke about was the resurrection of the dead. 
The issue which raised such a fierce dispute in the Sanhedrin. Ananias and his fellow Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, says Paul, by inference, who's orthodox and who's not orthodox? Who really believes the Scriptures? Who does not believe the Scriptures? It's a masterly rebuttal of the charges made against him by Paul, made against him by a professional orator. He's saying to the Romans, we present no threat to you and to the Roman government. No deviation from orthodox Jewish belief or practice. Any dispute we may have had is of a theological nature. It doesn't come under your jurisdiction, Felix. And the Roman governor knows this. Having heard the case for the prosecution, having heard Paul's defense, notice the judgment made by Felix. Felix knows there is no case to answer. There is no proof of the charges against Paul. He should really release him. He's well acquainted with the way. But he's a politician as well. He's unwilling to alienate the Jews or risk problems with them by releasing Paul. And so he does what many people have done before. He sits on the fence. He decides on an adjournment of the proceedings and a delay in the decision. He says, I'll, I'll wait till the governor, the, the army commander Lysias arrives to give us a bit more information about the case. So, Paul remains in custody in prison. Yes? He has some privileges. He's not locked up in a dark dungeon. He's got relative freedom. He's under kind of house arrest. His friends can visit him and bring him supplies and whatever else he needs. But I want you to imagine Paul there, looking out of his prison window. Who knows? Maybe in Caesarea, right on the coast, he can see the ships sailing out of there and he just longs to be out of there, spreading the gospel, taking the good news of Jesus to Rome. He believes that God, he knows that God has called him to go to Rome. What he doesn't know is he's going to go by a different means than he first anticipated. And he's going to spend two more years in prison in Caesarea awaiting that. Let me just pause here and say, it's one thing to be imprisoned. It's another to be imprisoned unjustly. And it's quite another to be imprisoned when the case against you has no substance and the court refuses to rule in your favour despite the evidence. Yet that is the case for many Christians today. And we should be aware of that. And the scriptures tell us if we are their fellow Christians, we are told in Hebrews 13.3, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. So if you are an intelligent, informed Christian, you should be up to date with these kind of things. You should get information from Christian solidarity worldwide or from the Barnabas Trust. Learn about our fellow Christians who are suffering for the faith. And let us be thankful for those who are gifted by God, like Paul, as defenders of the faith. Those who are skilled in apologetics. It's a very hard place to stand. And yet it's enormously important, those of us who have been involved uh, in the debates that have taken place, even in here in Edinburgh over the last couple of years, have known the tremendous interest there is in the student community, in the wider community, to put 1,500 people in the Usher Hall during the festival to listen to a debate between a Christian uh, and one of the so-called, you know, new atheists. We should give thanks to, uh, to God for people like John Lennox, Alistair McGrath, others who stand like them. Give thanks for folk closer to home. Many of you will know David Robertson. If there's ever anything in the paper, David writes letters. He's a great letter writer. And David Robertson's the minister at St. Peter's in Dundee. He's been here in the chapel. He was here a few months ago. 
Uh, and some of you may know that when Dawkins wrote his book, Richard Dawkins wrote his book, The God Delusion, uh, David wrote a letter to him. To his amazement, they put the letter on the Dawkins website. And the response, I couldn't quote the language on that website in response to David's letter. It wasn't reason, intelligent debate. It, it, it was, well, I just couldn't use the words in Charlotte Chapel, otherwise I'd be an ex-pastor, believe me. Um, it's well worth reading. David then wrote a succession of letters. If you want to know about the debate, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the Dawkins letters. Uh, David prints at the beginning of it some of the responses on the website. Here's one of the milder ones, the kind of things that you stand for if, you're, if you stand for the Christian faith. Here's a milder response. I'm impressed, says the writer, that some people here bother to debate the Robertson Lincoln poop. He is clearly out of his mind and beyond logic. If you do debate him, stop respecting his delusions, however eloquent he puts them. Good grammar, and please approach him with the scorn and contempt he deserves. Dawkins refuses to debate this sort of weirdness because it gives the person with a sick mind the impression that there really is something to debate. Now, you get that kind of thing all the time. We need to pray for people like that and give thanks to God for them. So, here we see Paul defending the faith in public. Let's turn secondly, more briefly, to him proclaiming the faith in private. Verses 24 to 27. Although Felix has refused to release Paul, despite the charges against him being not proven... He's not finished with the Apostle. I want you to imagine there's the Apostle Paul under house arrest and there's a knock at the door a few days later and lo and behold, who should be there but the governor himself with his wife, Drusilla. Now, you need to know something about Felix and Drusilla. Felix and Drusilla were the celebrity couple of the day. A celebrity couple in the Roman world. They'd be in all those kind of magazines and in, in, the, uh, in the tabloids. All right? Uh, Felix, as we've already seen, he was born a slave, but along with his brother, had been freed, uh, probably by the mother of the Emperor Claudius, and, and given free status. And both of these brothers punched above their weight. His brother Pallas rose to the influential per- position of being head of the civil service. And through that, Felix became the first ex-slave in history, in Roman history, to be appointed governor of a province. Now, you need to know a bit about him. He was characterized by violence, greed, and lust, and licentiousness. Drusilla was his third wife. He was her second husband. Uh, She'd been married at the age of 14, an arranged marriage to a rather minor prince, but Felix fell for her, and it's, I don't want to go into the story, you can, if you're interested in these kind of things. He persuaded a friend to pretend he was a magician to convince her that she ought to divorce her husband and marry Felix, which she did. Uh, don't believe, though, that she was an innocent party in this. Because like Felix, she was attracted to power and to wealth. She was very beautiful. She's not yet 20 years old when this occurs. Uh, unlike Felix, though, she came from a Jewish family. She came from a very well-known family. When I tell you the name of the family, you'll know the names. She came from the family of the Herods. Her great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus and the babies in Bethlehem. We'll be coming to the Christmas story soon. Her great-uncle killed John the Baptist. 
and mocked Jesus at his trial. And we saw in Acts 12 how her father killed the Apostle James, tried to kill Peter and met with the gruesome men. So here is a woman who's got, we might say, history. Bad history. Now, imagine you're a Christian leader. These kind of things sometimes do happen. <laughs> um, you're a Christian leader and this celebrity couple appear and want to talk with you. They want a private audience. What do you do and say to such a couple? The answer, sadly, for some leaders in churches is to do the wrong thing. To make allowances for them or to be swayed not only by their popularity but also by their wealth and power. Thankfully, Paul is not in this category as we see from Luke's account. Notice Paul's message to Felix and Drusilla. In short, we learn, Luke tells us, verse 24, he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Celebrities, as well as non-entities, need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no one righteous, no one who qualifies for the kingdom of heaven because they're celebrities, or they've got more money than everybody else, or they're more beautiful than everybody else, or even more intelligent than everybody else. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Whether you're a celebrity here today in Charlotte Chapel, or you think you're a non-entity, or most of us somewhere in between those two, an itty of some kind or other, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's Paul speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what's interesting is, is here that he's pretty specific as well. He doesn't sort of give a general evangelistic message. No, Luke tells us he's very specific. He speaks about righteousness, the moral demands of following Jesus, about self-control, the need for personal discipline in respect of temptation. And he doesn't pull his punches. He concludes with the judgment to come, that all men and women, including a judge like Felix, a higher person in the Roman Empire, and his wife will once one day stand before the judge of all men. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a great old Scottish commentator, uh, comments, these were three subjects Felix and Drusilla needed to hear about. <laughs> and Paul doesn't pull his punches. He says, put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he preaches about righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. Those three subjects echo with what the Lord Jesus Christ promised. You remember in John's Gospel, before he left his disciples, Jesus said, I'm going to send another person like me, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, verse 8. To convict means to expose something so challenging the conscience. It's the same word used, in fact, of John the Baptist when he spoke about Herod's marriage to his brother's wife and said, you shouldn't be doing that. It cost him his life and his head. Now, Jesus promised that when, when his servants speak and proclaim the gospel in these terms, the Holy Spirit does his work. His convicting work. And this we see in the case of at least one of them. Notice the response of Felix to Paul's message. Consternation. Felix was afraid. Here he is, he turns up at this meeting with this apostle and he's going to discuss religion in general. 
And Paul begins to preach the gospel to him about faith in Jesus, about righteousness, self-control, judgment. And we read that Felix was afraid. Literally, he is a stronger word than afraid. He is very alarmed. He's frightened. In his book on Acts, Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, comments, he, that's Felix, plays a kind of cat and mouse game with Paul in which though he may have thought to begin with he was the cat, he ends up being the frightened mouse. Now, who's in the dock? Who's the judge? Now, Paul is guilty of disturbing the peace. Disturbing the peace of the Roman governor, Felix. See, it's a crucial moment for Felix. He probably never imagined he'd be put on the spot like this. God speaks to his mind and heart and conscience. It's a crucial moment for every person who comes under conviction of sin when the Holy Spirit speaks to the heart and conscience. Let me ask you a question. Are you a churchgoer? Have you ever been afraid, truly spiritually afraid, in God's presence of the consequences of your sin, the fact that God demands self-control, and that one day you'll stand before God in judgment? Whoever you are this morning, you will stand before God in judgment. Now, if, if you are not a Christian and that does not terrify you, nothing will ever terrify you. But there is nothing, nothing more alarming than hearing God's voice speak to you and challenge you. Maybe, maybe we were praying in the vestry beforehand. Maybe there are people here this morning, individuals here. Maybe you've been in church before. Maybe you just stepped in off the street and God speaks to your heart and mind and conscience. I don't need to tell you what the issues are, but you are convicted by your sin by your guilt in regard to God. Yeah, there is a false guilt, but there is a true guilt. And unless you've really experienced it at some point, you will never appreciate the gift and grace of God of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because although it's very terrifying, it is also very encouraging because it's God speaking to you and warning you before the judgment to do something about it. And when God speaks to you like that, maybe this morning speaks to your heart and mind and conscience. The next step you take this morning is of crucial importance, maybe for your eternal destiny. Can I overstate that? Sadly, Felix takes the wrong step. And he does what so many of us do, and what happens every Sunday in church when the gospel is proclaimed. Not outright rejection. You don't jump up and say, no, 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 rubbish, I'm out of here. Few people do that. Not many in my experience. Most people say, yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, hmm, I must do something about that sometime. Procrastination. Felix says to Paul, as he comes in the conviction of sin, he says, that's enough for now. You may lead. Leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. See, many people think when God speaks to them, they can put it off and choose another day when they find it more convenient to respond. Can I say again? You only come when God calls. You may say, oh, I'll find a more convenient day. I've got some things I need to do in my life at the moment. I've got my career to advance and uh, there are other agendas. And I know if I became a Christian, it would mean me giving up this relationship or putting this straight in my life. And, and I, I'm not prepared to do that at the moment, but I'm not against it. I know you're right, really, but j- just leave it with me for now and I'll come back to it later. When I find it convenient. 
Of course, Felix sends for Paul again and again. You, you know, it really worries me the people who aren't Christians who come to church again and again. I'm not saying don't stop coming, but every time you hear the message you come, your heart gets harder and harder. And you almost become like you enjoy it. Because you learn how to, immu- to be, immunize yourself against the Holy Spirit pleading with your heart and mind. And other things enter in. Felix is now more concerned. Maybe this guy, Paul, has raised all this money for the poor that he brought to Jerusalem. Maybe he's got a source of funds and maybe he'll offer me a bribe and I can get some money out of this. And other agendas enter in so easily, so quickly. But he was wrong. He never received a penny from Paul. And Paul never received any evidence that he put his faith in Jesus Christ. So he just kept visiting until one day there was a riot in Jerusalem. Felix went in with his two left feet as normal, as normal, caused horrendous damage. The Jewish leaders complained to Rome. And even the Roman emperor Nero said, enough is enough. And said to Felix, right, you're back to Rome. You're to stand trial for this. You've gone one te- step too far this time. And without any more opportunity, after two, he's taken away from the situation. Humanly speaking, he escapes a verdict. His brother Pallas steps in again and gets him off the hook. That's not the important thing. The important thing is miss the opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life is saved, but not his soul. But when he left Caesarea and left Paul in custody, it was too late. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews... He put Paul in prison. The American preacher, Pastor Warren Wisby, comments, The governor's mind was enlightened, his emotions were stirred, but his will would not yield. He tried to gain the world, but as far as we know, he lost his soul. He procrastinated himself into hell. Strong words. And it's a salutary warning as we conclude. To anyone here who hears even this message today who is not a Christian, you must come when God calls. When God convicts you of your sin and your need of a saviour, do not put it off for a more convenient day for the more convenient day may never come. Other things will always enter in. In the case of Felix, the love of money and the influence of a spouse, probably the two key things that turn people away from following Christ. The love of money the influence of a spouse or a partner. Because it means you never make a decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. How sad for you and for everyone who shares the gospel with you. John Stott again comments, certainly the release of Felix from sin meant more to Paul than his own release from prison. What a contrast with that jailer that we met in Philippi, who also, terrified, cried out, what must I do to be saved? And when Paul tells him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, he believes and is baptized that very night. Maybe for someone here this morning, you need to take that decision. You'll see in the bulletin, we have a baptismal service in the morning and the evening next week. There are around six people already want to be baptized. We've got room for more. Maybe God has been challenging you to stand up and be counted to take that decision for Christ. Come and speak to us afterwards. I'll be available afterwards. Other folk be available to talk to you. But let me conclude again with the words of the Apostle Paul. And with this I do finish. Interestingly, it's in a letter he wrote to professing Christians. 
an urgent appeal. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let us pray.